Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome everyone to episode number 26 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE, Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Rizzi. John, how you doing? How you doing, uh, Santa? <laughs> oh, John. Well, I'm, I'm living my Santa dream, which is a lot of work, and uh, we would have gotten this done a lot earlier if I wasn't so busy. And busy is good because nobody wants me in January, John. Nobody calls me in January. I'm just called between after Thanksgiving and right up to Christmas, and that's about it. Yeah, and I'm sure you've been very busy putting together the naughty list, the nice list. There's a lot of responsibility when it comes to being Santa Claus, so I know it's your busy time, and I really appreciate the fact, even though this podcast is a little late from the December 10th, anniversary that we're covering you're here you took a little break from uh, all the santa responsibilities uh so we're gonna have a really good one today yes we are and we're gonna introduce a very special guest that's gonna help us go through this uh, amazing show here at the garden but let me go back real quick uh tell me how are the other podcasts going uh well right now tim uh the uh, pro wrestling spotlight is still uh you know we're every week we're taking a little break for christmas uh we just uh, taped uh, episode number 102 with tammy fitch and chris candido on the show so that was a real good one it was their first appearance and only appearance as a couple on there we covered the uh, wcw triple a iwc paper review from November the 6th, 1994. So yeah, that one is a good one. But the Tammy and Chris thing was really fascinating, especially with the way her life, you know, took that she's in jail probably for the rest of her life. And of course, uh, with Chris not with us anymore, uh, it really was uh, very poignant to hear them too was a happy couple in Smoky Mountain. Okay, so it was from Smoky Mountain at the time. Yes. And what was really cool about it is like, because Tammy had called into not as Tammy. She called in to talk to Jim Cornette two years earlier, asking him some questions as kind of a fan and said she her name was Lynn from Memphis. Uh, and then we put the two tapes together and compared the voices, and it was definitely 100,000% her. Uh, so we cleared up that mystery finally. Uh, so it's a good one. It's a, it's a, you know, a little bit of a marathon one to end the year out. Uh, but we're doing that on the baseball front. My friend John Gibbons, who uh, I did the Gibby show with, top baseball podcast in Canada. He got hired by the New York Mets since our last broadcast, so now he's back where it all started for him uh, as the bench coach, uh, working with Mets, uh, new 
manager, Carlos Mendoza. So unfortunately, the Gibby show comes to an end. One more episode to go there. So uh, uh, he can't do a Toronto Blue Jays podcast. Obviously, he's a member of the New York Mets. So uh, that ends the run. We had a 15-month run, which did very, very well. Very popular show. And now I'm kind of pivoting to 2024. I'll be in the baseball podcasting world, uh, hopefully with a, a brand new New York Mets podcast. You know, that's my team. I've always has been. And I'm also exploring keeping the Toronto Blue Jays podcast alive. But the key factors on both of those shows is to get the really good, high profile, prominent co-hosts that add that cachet uh, of like Gibby did, you know. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting start of the year for me. Absolutely. And now that uh, Gibby's with the Mets, hopefully he can help you with your Met podcast and everything can turn out great. It's, it's interesting because we were talking about this off air is like it's you're so happy for your friend. But on the other hand, you're losing the podcast. Yeah. And we had a, a wonderful run. It was uh, well received. It was uh, sponsored by Miller Lite and Tim Hortons. Uh, they were ready to renew for 2024 because they were very satisfied with the results and how we worked with them. But, um, you know, unfortunately, it comes to an end um, with the Gibby show. And yeah, it, it hurts because that was uh, kind of uh, that was kind of a my weekly uh, uh, my job. <laughs> Absolutely, and it brought you back in the baseball. And let, let, let's pivot real quick uh, to this show and your Patreon. It, 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 I always talk about the Patreon being a great gift to give to somebody. Uh, Patreon's a great gift that lasts longer than, you know, a pair of socks that are going to, or something. They're going to enjoy this longer oh, yeah. than a lot of things. Giving Patreon for the year, a subscription to the Patreon, it, it's not going to cost you much, and they get enjoyment month after month after month. Yeah, because they get the entire archives of the original broadcast for five bucks a month. I mean, you know, 256 shows up there now. Uh, that all the original broadcasts and then with other levels you get vintage audio vintage video so uh, patreon.com forward slash john Arezzi. check it out if you want to gift it to somebody that's great and they now have a new platform where you could actually sell merchandise on patreon directly to your uh, patrons so we're going to explore that for the beginning of the year because uh, there's a lot of archives that I think I'm now going to unload. Uh, I just started off with, uh, there was a fan uh, uh, who was a big Harley Race fan. And a few years back, he saw a few of my pictures and he goes, you know, do you have the negatives to this or the contact sheets? And I made a deal with him. And uh, so I'm looking at the thousands of pictures and thousands of negatives I have that I'm like, well, you know, I got thousands of them. Let's see if I could uh, move some of them and give somebody uh, some memories that they'll never forget with some of these old negatives. And we've talked off the year about this, and I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. This is something that's going to be put up on the Patreon first to see for you guys, for first, if you guys would like it. If not, maybe we'll go to the Ebays or the other things. So if you like this kind of stuff, you're going to get first crack at it if you're a Patreon member. Yeah, it's very true. Because I, you know, going on eBay and all of that, I'd, I'd rather go right to the the hardcore fans that really are going to appreciate it, especially the ones that, that listen to the show like this or Pro Wrestling Spotlight because they're into the history. Patreon.com/slash John Rizzi. Let's get into today's show, but we got to welcome our first guest, John. Would you welcome our guest? Yes. Well, our only guest, uh, unless you're going <laughs> to turn it into Santa Claus. Here. I got nothing else. <laughs> We're so happy to bring back to the program uh, Carrie Silken and Carrie. First of all, happy holidays to you, and I'm. 
Very, very happy that you're here reviewing this historic night at Madison Square Garden with us. Once again, I appreciate the opportunity. I've enjoyed the previous podcast that I've done with you guys. Uh, how many people are out there that uh, are interested in the history? We know that it's uh, it's a select crowd, but you know uh, the kids need to learn. I never understood, even in Ring of Honor, real quick, I would bring up talking about the territories or names or, oh, the NWA champion. I remember one time when Samoa Joe, I believe it was Joe and maybe AJ Styles, they didn't know that the NWA champion traveled around to the territories. Maybe it was AJ Styles and Loki. I can't remember, but Jim Coronette was at that show. And when he heard this, he was astounded. What's the old saying? If you don't learn, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes. Or I'm probably butchering it. It's something it's, like that. It's something like that. If you uh, if you don't learn the history, you're doomed to repeat it, or something like that. So it's it's important, and uh, I'll, I'm going to speak for myself. But the consistency of your shows, with the map memories, with uh, covering your old radio show. It's good that it's out there, and uh, I'm sure you you gain some younger people as it goes on. We would hope. Yeah, our, our demographic is uh, 40 plus. That's the sweet spot for what we do on both of these shows, and it is a niche audience. It's a it's a it's a slowly dying audience. Uh, you know, there's not very many that there used to be. But for those who do get the opportunity and people who do listen to it, they love it. They enjoy it. And we do have some peripheral younger folks that listen in. Uh, it's uh, 95% men, 5% women. Predominantly uh, for this show and even for the Pro Wrestling Spotlight, uh, the majority are in the New York metropolitan area that that download the show and listen to uh, both of these shows because that's where this all originates from. I would hope that there, you know, there, there were other people like, I don't know, I'm just pulling this out. Of left field, someone did a show covering the Olympic Auditorium and, you know, mm -hmm. the main events or the Cobo Hall or fill in the blank. I would be thrilled at, at that. But uh, it is what it is. And I have a disclaimer here. Oh, ooh, disclaimer. Go. I was not in attendance at this show. But oh. I did it around the, uh, the show before that. The shows after yeah. that, I have no idea what was going on, but this was absolutely the heart of my fandom. And I had a feeling, I don't want to jump the shark here. I had a feeling my little 17 or 16 year old head sort of knew what was going to happen. You knew something yeah. was going to happen. And we can, let's get into that right now because what we were talking about with earlier on is that the buildup on TV and the buildup on TV. Uh, John, explain to everybody again, when did they do the TV taping? So back in the day, when you're going to go running a monthly show, you can't have the guys wrestling every week on television unless you tape them ahead of time. So they went ahead and they taped them in the beginning of the month. But then the title change, how do they deal with a title change coming up to the Garden Show? Yeah, this was an interesting one because typically uh, you tape in Philadelphia and then in Hamburg, you do two days of TV, tape them every three weeks. 
for this particular situation, they actually had to um, edit in, like Vince McMahon edited in a, uh, a, a a voice track in between, like right in the beginning of one of the matches. Uh, typically, if you're watching championship wrestling back in the day, it would be the ring announcer going in, introducing Joe Turco against Manuel Soto, and, and then the bell would ring. Instead of the play-by-play, it would say, Coming this Monday at Madison Square Garden, Bruno San Martino, da, da, da. so they would do that. And that's what happened here. It was the week before the Garden Show, and that's where the vast majority of fans found out that there was a title switch. Where was the title switched with Stasiak? Uh, the title switch was December the 1st in Philly. So it was, a, it was a, and this show that we're covering is December 10th. So when that happened, and I don't know how long it was planned that Bruno was coming back to win, but that shocked the world when it was announced that Pedro Morales had lost the title to Stan Stasiak in Philadelphia. There were no cameras there. It wasn't filmed. And then it was like, all right, now Bruno San Martino will be facing Stan Stasiak for the title on December 10th because that match had been already booked. We all knew insiders, even at 16 years old, Carrie, you were saying you kind of knew that, okay, this is going to happen, that uh, Bruno probably going to get the title on December 10th. Yeah, it just seemed that way. Um, You had probably more dealings with Bruno than I did. We had him at Ring of Honor twice. We had him, and I mentioned this on the previous podcast, we had him do a shoot interview, so-called shoot interview with, with Jim Carnett as the host. And John, I want your opinion on this. Bruno, even in 2006, would not break kayfabe. And Jim Carnett spoke to him as if these events were not pre-planned. And I think as the story goes, and I am... There's no official word, and that's this is where I'd like your opinion. I think they made a quick decision. Vince McMahon Sr. must have negotiated, and Pedro's run was good, but I don't think he was drawing as well outside of the Philadelphia, New York, Boston market. And we've discussed this. It was a heavy Latino crowd. And some of these other cities, he was losing his luster. And... Uh, I think uh, Vince Sr. was able to uh, make Bruno a lucrative deal to get him back. And you know what? He was right. Yeah, he uh, definitely had that decision made because Morales was not outside the garden, like you said, Philadelphia, where he drew, uh, even Boston to a certain extent. They knew that he wasn't drawing it at the other house shows. I do remember going to a show at a place called the Brooklyn Rollerama in Bensonhurst. And it was under the L there on 86th Street. It was a show that I went to, and it was like a little rolling, a roller rink. And it was it was Morales against Lonnie Maine. And the show wasn't, you know, there were seats empty there. And it only held, what, less than a thousand people, I would think. I went because Blassie was on the show. But yeah, those were the kind of things that were happening. And, and with Bruno, when he left after losing to Koloff in 71, and he, you know, did sporadic shows, he was kind of happy with the lighter schedule. So McMahon had to make him a very lucrative offer to come back as the champion. And maybe it was short term that Vince then finally convinced him. All right. You know, he kept pushing the envelope and it's like, all right, Bruno, you know, another year's gone by. Let's have you in for another year. So I guess money had something to do with it, but Bruno wound up staying uh, and had that title run from uh, 73 right through 77. So he was there for quite a while in the second reign. I had a similar experience as your roller rink experience. I remember it had to be 72 or three because I was a kid and I took the bus 
into the city on a Saturday afternoon. Well, where would I be going on a Saturday afternoon? Meeting my friend Howie, who I met through the matches at Sunnyside Gardens. So this way I was able to get in the city, get out of the city and uh, make it back to little Cranford, New Jersey. Not that, you know, it was past my bedtime where I had to be home for dinner, but I was only a 16 year old kid. And on that show, it was Pedro Morales against Buddy Wolf. And if it was half full, uh, it was okay. There you go. Proof in the pudding. If Bruno is on the top of that show, you know that it's selling out at those little places. That is amazing. It's amazing that you can take a champion like a Pedro and pull him out of the garden and have him somewhere in the vicinity of the garden and not be able to sell out. Well, Buddy Wolf wasn't uh, a four-star name, but it it still was a title match. And uh, for me, even though I knew at that age, it was sort of a B, a, a grade B show. It was still exciting. You know, I was happy to go to any wrestling. Yeah. And back in the day, you didn't get it. You got it on TV. But going to, I remember going to high schools. Remember when the WWF did the high school shows? I remember going to high school shows and you wouldn't put up who's wrestling who. You just put up the wrestler's name and that would be it. Like, oh, who's going to be here? This person or this person. So having a name like Pedro should be selling it out. And like John said, if you had a name like Bruno on there, it would have been sold out. Yes, absolutely. I don't know why I didn't go to this show. It was, uh, I, I just don't know, but once again, I'm was so ensconced in the WWWF and John, we we've we've referenced this, but at the time, Channel 47 was showing the wrestling from uh, Florida, and Channel 41 was showing the Olympic Auditorium, and this is pre-cable, the UHF. Boy, I used to have to play with that round antenna, you know, to try. <laughs> but oh, we got to see we got to see some other territories. Vince Sr. would bring in some of these Florida and California stars, as well as other stars. Vern Gagne, uh, you've covered them on these. And I think we're going to see one of those type of uh of stars uh, on this card. Yeah, yeah, we definitely, we definitely get, get into that for sure. But I do want to circle back about Bruno and the knowledge of Bruno winning the title that night, uh, because obviously we've seen it. You know, we heard it on, on TV. There was no internet, so you don't know. You know, you hear that on TV, and you're like, wow. But that Monday night before the show, we had a little bit of a tradition where upstairs from the garden, there was that bowling alley with the restaurant and uh, George Ann Macropolis, Richie Mershon from Philadelphia, Michael Mansky, uh, and some of the other Philly guys. We'd get together, you know, monthly to have dinner before the garden show. And then uh, going there that night, it, it was a party atmosphere because Georgie knew, Georgie knew that Bruno was winning the title. And so we sat down and we had dinner and it was kind of a celebration even before Bruno was handed the belt beating Stasiak. So that was kind of like... I really felt like a true insider uh, when we're sitting down and Georgie's like, uh, my baby's winning the title tonight, you know, and she's like all exuberant and excited because she ran his fan club and then, you know, Rogers fan club and Bruno. She was very close to Bruno. And the fact that we were able to the six or seven of us uh, having some hamburgers and, and a beer before the show, we knew that we were going to be in to see a very historic night at Madison Square Garden. I, I met her. 
but I didn't know her and I knew about her involvement, but once again, because it was pre-internet, but her Mm -hmm. name was bandied about. I would see her name in the wrestling magazines, in the fan club chatter. And uh, yeah, that's how I met her. Not to drag this out, but you know, tell me a little bit about her, please. Georgie was kind of like everybody's mom. Okay. You know, she was a little older, uh, older than all of us, and she ran uh, various. Uh, she wrote various fan club columns for the newsstand wrestling magazine. She was huge into the fan club and the fandoms, and she was always helpful. Uh, so I met her when I started the Blasty Club. Saw her name in the magazines and her pictures, and then finally got to meet her. And I was in the middle of Blasty. I just developed a friendship with her and she was always there to help even during the days of pro wrestling spotlight even during the times of my conventions uh and and recently as early a couple of weeks ago we reviewed a show that georgie called in because she had the wrestling chatterbox which was a true fan bulletin it mm-hmm. didn't talk about the insider stuff it didn't talk about four-star matches it didn't talk about what's going on in the locker rooms it was about wrestlers birthdays it was features on their personal life it was helping other fans who were fans of the business. And it was the chatterbox. She chatted about everything. Uh, and she lived a lifetime in Astoria, Queens, uh, on Steinway Street there. Everybody loved George Ann Macropolis. Uh, and she sat in that same second row aisle seat by the curtain where the guys came out of Madison Square Garden every single show. And she was a huge proponent and a huge help to Vince McMahon Sr. and Vince Jr. And she was like, at every convention I had, she was there. She promoted it and the love that the wrestlers had for her as well. And the other thing I remember about Georgie is like after the garden shows, once I got in and, uh, you know, we found out like after the garden show, everyone's going to the Savoy Bar, which is across the street from the Madison Hotel, where uh, the Edison Hotel in New York City on 42nd, 46th Street between Broadway and mm-hmm. uh, uh, 8th Avenue. Uh, and that's where everyone would go after the show to have some drinks. And she'd always walk in with Bruno, you know, she'd go in with Bruno and a few others because that's how tight they were. And there was always a table in the back of that bar, which held 50 people, 60 people max. It was a tiny little shithole bar. But that table in the back was Bruno's table. Don't go near it. Stories like this and people like Georgianne, it's such a charm to this era that we're talking about. And it's something that has sort of dissipated over the years. Thank you for uh, sharing that with me. And uh, you were lucky to be in the club. I didn't know her at that time. I I really was. I really, really was. And John, you want to tell Carrie about the meeting that she put together for you for a photo shoot that she got for you at your convention where it was Bruno and Buddy Rogers. Well, that was um, very historic because there there was no love lost between those two. And since Georgie ran Bruno's fan club and before then Buddy Rogers fan club, she convinced the two of them to take a picture for her. And they did. There were two photos. There was one picture with just Bruno and Buddy. And there was a picture of Bruno, Buddy with Georgie. That photo of her and Bruno and Buddy uh, was put in her casket at her wake. Very cool. God bless Georgie. (laughs) And it's so true what Kerry was saying earlier. Now everyone wants to get them. Oh, look what I got. I saw this first. I got this. And this is who's going to win. Where Georgianne was always about the the love of it. And, like, let's talk about the fandom of it. And that's so lost today. No one wants to say they're a fan. They want to say they're an insider. No one wants to be a fan of it. Everyone wants to say they're an insider. And Georgie, you know, she'd like to share gossip. She was kind of like 
if you remember the name Hedda Hopper, who was a celebrity, who was the you know, a lot of the he younger ones won't, but I think some of the fans six. listening here. A walking yeah. so she was kind of like Hedda Hopper of wrestling. <laughs> but she also, like if she was telling you something that she wanted to keep, you know, this is gossip. This is keep it kayfabe, John. Keep it kayfabe. And I would. Very cool. The kayfabe term was kayfabe back then. Yes. I mean, the privilege. I'm serious. It was a privilege to learn that. I didn't know that term. Right. And if you use that term in front of the boys, they would like give you a look like, who the freak are you right. to use this? This is our term. And Carney, the way they talk Carney in the back. Yeah, if you started talking Carney or saying kayfabe or anything like that, you would be bounced out of there. That was their world. That was their private language. Not a reporter's, not an other insider's, not certainly a fan, but that was a secret language for those who were in the ring and who promoted the biz. Okay, now I got a question for both of you then. When did the term Mark come out? Uh, well, I think the term's been around for a long time, going back to the carnival mm -hmm. era, you know, the days of the Depression or even before that, you know, these people that would come to play these games in the carnival and other rigged things. My uncle Gunny, well, his name was Irving, but he, see, he, he morphed into having a nickname of Gunny for a short period of time. He had a, uh, you know, the thing, uh, you still see them at the carnivals. And then uh, this was in Coney Island with like the five milk, uh, three or four, you know, milk bottles. And you try to throw the softball. Well, he ran yep. one of those. And uh, this is a legend because I didn't see it happen. But according to Gunny, this is in the 50s. Real bad storm came through Coney Island and everything was knocked down, but not those milk bottles. <laughs> hey, Terry, explain I, what these milk bottles were. They're not just regular milk bottles. They're like metal no, milk bottles. like these iron. Yes. You've seen them. If you, even if you go to a state fair nowadays, I, I, I think the game still exists or some version of it. You guys know what I'm talking about. The bottoms of some of those bottles were heavier than the other ones. So you I could think... hit some and knock them over. But there were some that were so heavy on the bottom that they'll never get tipped over. I think the bottom ones were glued to the floor. But... They could have been. <laughs> but yeah, so Uncle Gunny told me the, the buildings blew down, roofs came off, but those bottles stood up. So back to the original question, when did I know the term Mark? I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Did you, was that word bandied about, John, when you were at these bowling alley or the Savoy? That was a, that was a very, very disparaging term. You know, it really was uh, because you're calling it. somebody like, you know, there's an easy mark or whatever. So I didn't hear that as much as, the, you know, uh, in the early days when you were around, the, you know, in the, I didn't understand Carney at all. But right. uh, the term mark was used and it was used disparaging against uh, some of the fans or in particular, maybe a group of fans or a fan or two that uh, that was not really that respected. I, and I want to add to that because we're going to go right back around to Tammy Cinch because that's the first time I heard it at your convention because she was telling everybody this this person over there is a mark for me or these people are marks for me. That she kept on using the word over and over again 
she was very big about inflating her ego around people. She's very, you know, she, she, she must have very low self-esteem of herself because I, I remember the first time I ever met her when she was working for Smoky Mountain. She was talking about all these marks around her and all the yeah. mark and he's a mark. And, and I really didn't know what it meant. And, and Richie Garcia had to tell me what a mark is. And I still feel it very discouraging. If you're a fan of someone, you if, if someone's a fan of me, I'd be so honored that they're a fan. First of all, I would never want to call them a mark if they're a super fan. Would you? No. No. And no. some of the kids in Ring of Honor, uh, I'll leave their names out, but they're big AEW stars now, two of them. They're very close to each other. So I think you can figure out who I'm, and they're good friends of mine, the Bucks, right? And they were like sweet kids, but oh, Carrie, these marks. I go, don't say that. They're paying to see you, they're buying your autographs. The younger brother, the Nick, is a sweet kid, but he thought it was cool to say that because he was 22 years old and he had learned the term. And I tried to teach him in a in a big, big brother, fatherly way that it's not appropriate. It really isn't. As you said, Tim, it, it's an insulting uh, saying. It's not cool. I, I just want to get that off my chest because I remember when I heard it first, I, I felt, you know, what is this? And then I did realize it's insulting. Uh, let's get back into the matches real now. Now, I don't know if Kerry knew this. Now, if Carrie, if you were friends with John, you would have known this because two months before this, John got the hookup at Madison Square Garden. So for the last two months, John has been sitting anywhere else except for the second row. I am a faithful listener to this show. Uh, also, having to battle to get tickets, which I which wound up being my living, which when you know work in the streets of the garden. Having a ticket agency for many years that funded Ring of Honor. The trickery, not the trickery, but the hookups and those guys in the window at the garden, as I went on to learn much after John did, John was on top of the game because in the 80s, when I was hustling tickets at the garden, you know, there'd be a big show on sale, you two, and there'd be big lines and you had to wait all night. But I learned and I was taught, look, it's a it's a six ticket limit. Carrie, when you go to the window, throw the guy here. Can I get another six? And throw him like 40 bucks. You know, if it was a U2 show or if it was Elton John or something appropriate. And you had to know the guy a little. They just wouldn't take it. No. It's really cool that John was able to get that hookup. You had to be introduced to right. somebody, to the guy. And my that guy was Bill Baker. That was his name. And I was introduced to him by a guy named Mike Abrams, who I always saw in the first row. And I was like, every month. And he's taking pictures and he's selling those pictures outside the garden. And finally, I got to know him. And, you know, I had Blassie's fan club and he saw me every month. And finally, he told me what the what the secret was. And he made the introduction for me the first time, uh, which was November of 73 and $7, $3 tip. You're in the second row. It, like even in the 80s. These guys, like when they were doing this, they would be like sliding the tickets, like looking. Well, around. this guy, this guy was actually he'd open up a window. He wouldn't even be at the regular where all the fans were nice. gathering to get their their tickets. He'd be like three or four windows down and all of a sudden it would open up and, and he would just gesture you over. Beautiful. Because we'd sit there. We'd be waiting for him. We'd be waiting for him. Like, you know, the show's going to start in about a half an hour. Where is he? You I know, and then so. finally that window opened up and you run up there and. 
you know, I was like the three dollars. And then I finally I think I advanced it to five. So then I started getting the first row, you know, so but it was like it it, it happened throughout November of uh, 73, right until I got my press pass, my photographer's pass, which was early 75. So uh, for those 12, 14 months to be sitting up close like that, it was heaven it was magic most of my madison square garden shows in the 70s we surrendered to sitting in the you know they had the levels red orange yellow green and the blues on top and, and we surrendered yeah. to sitting in in the in the red or the orange section in the middle you know i wasn't able yeah. to get into the city early i didn't know bill baker or about Bill Baker. So we would sit in these good lower level seats in the center, and we were happy with that. For some reason, I'm thinking of Seinfeld right now, and it sounds like something like the soup Nazi, where you walk up, you get your thing, you move over. Don't ask questions. Don't do anything. Yeah. Don't say, oh, can I get other ones? No, 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 no. no. You just get what they give you. You give them the money. Yes. And, and you notice, you notice, Carrie, how... $3 got John a, a second or third row seat, but $2 more got him a front row seat. Right, because a lot of people, first of all, he had to trust you. Like, as John referenced, he was introduced. We could go on, for, I could go on for hours here about stories about the, the Broadway box offices and the box office at the Beacon Theater and Radio City. And there was always the guys, you know, some of them were looking for it. Other ones were, were paranoid, but uh, God bless Bill Baker. I love it. I, I love yes. this history that, you know, Kerry can tell me it better. It does go on today, but back in the day, how special this was. Uh, getting back to the show. By the way, this is the podcast. We, we have a little bit about the show and a lot about everything else. As you all know, Pedro, we talked about Pedro lost his title to Stan Stasiak 10 days earlier in Philadelphia before this garden show this month. Kerry, uh, one of the reasons we want to have you on a show is I, we don't feel that Pedro Morales has been represented enough in history. You know, he's in the Hall of Fame, but he's never talked about anymore. He's never what what he what he brought to the sport of of, of wrestling. What he brought to the WWF and then uh, the WWF and then the WWF. So, John, let's run down a little about some of his matches because he was a great champion at the Garden. But like we said earlier, the Garden he did a little well in Philadelphia, sometimes in Boston. But that's not your whole territory. And when your whole territory is depending on things. Uh, even though you're at the garden, you're doing well, you're losing money other places. Is that correct? Well, yeah, if you're not selling out, you know, I don't know what his deal was. And well, he, he's not selling out the, the arenas that, that you both are going to, the no, Sunnyside Garden. No, no, but I mean, but, you know, he, he had a good run. He's not talked about a lot. The only time you really hear his name now on WWE television as they compare how many days Roman Reigns has been right. champion in comparison to how many days Morales was champion and then Bruno. And of course, Morales wrestled probably five times a week and Roman wrestles maybe every three months, you know? So uh, I think that's just ludicrous anyway, but saying, Oh, well, he's going to beat Mor You know, he's on his way to beating Morales's record. And it's like, what, how, why? Because he's, because he works every three months. It's ridiculous. But yeah, Morales never got the flowers, as they say in today's lingo, you know, in comparison to some of the others. I'm looking back through the Bible here, and you've covered all these. He had some great opponents. I mean, Tampero yeah. Furpo, the spoiler, King Curtis, Ernie Ladd, Ray Stevens, George Steele, of course. I, I've got a question. I don't know if we can, if, if John can answer this, 
The prior show, and you guys covered it, and I listened to it, was Morales against Larry Hennig. And that mm -hmm. ended in a stoppage of blood. Did they announce a rematch? of that and that was then switched so in other words was the was it supposed to be morales against henning because they had to announce something well that would have been the main event yeah that would have been the, the rematch main event for that night and bruno was announced they announced the oh, show yeah, you know you know, as they did typically and then morales uh, fought uh and we'll get into it in the in the gimmick match uh with henning on this night but they just switched the main events and made right. uh stasiak bruno main event and then the undercard uh, featured uh, Morales and Henning in that uh, in that gimmick match, which we'll talk about. If Georgian haven't didn't give you the Iggy, here's another expression: didn't give you the Iggy, as they say, boys and girls, smarten you up. Did you have a feeling that this was Bruno's night? There was going to be a title change. I did. Absolutely, I did. Absolutely. Once I heard that on TV, that Morales lost to Stasiak and Bruno was taking on Stasiak. Uh, I, I, that's it. It's just like Bruno's going to freaking win the title again. Well, let's let's go back to Pedro for a second. Pedro had a great run at the Garden. Do you have a favorite opponent that he wrestled at the Garden? Let's start with you, Kerry. I know I know. we spoke about this in a previous uh, – We didn't. I wasn't on for this show, but it was uh, my dad taking me for my 14th birthday – and that was November 15th, 1971, Pedro Morales and Freddie Blassie. I was so happy they brought in Freddie Blassie. You know, I was buying the re wrestling magazines since 1966. And I would read about Blassie and filing his teeth and the bloody matches. You know, he was portrayed in the magazines from these stories as a dastardly villain. And then I got to see him, the, the shows on the Spanish International Network. Interestingly enough, he was a baby face for a period of time before he came to New York in LA. He was a heel forever, but he and John Tolos had this big feud. But yes, my my that was my that was my favorite opponent. Maybe it's because it was my first time. But uh, Morales' matches were pretty much textbook uh, style that he did. He, he didn't do a lot of wrestling. He had a mean left hook. And uh, what do you think? Who was your favorite opponent, John? You know, it's, it's really ironic because that was your first show, November 15th, 1971. It was my third show. And I was just as excited to see Blassie come in. I was ecstatic because Blassie was kind of under Bruno was my favorite wrestler. And I, I'd read about him in the magazines and I'd see him on the L.A. tapings from the Olympic Auditorium. And that was the guy I always wanted to see when he came in and he got that match November 15th. I was there. I was in the seventh or eighth row ringside. I was ecstatic. It was my most memorable uh, opponent against uh, against Morales. It was probably my favorite opponent against Morales. But that night on November 15th, 1971, was the night that I decided to start the Blassie fan club because they had that rematch on December the 6th, and that's the night that I brought a, a little typed permission slip because I read in the magazines the wrestler has to sign a permission slip for you to sign a fan club, start a fan club for them. And I took this little, you know, little piece of paper to the dressing room. And I'm like, I, I got to go in and get Freddie Blassie to sign this. And the and security guards you? are like, 
I know you've told this story before. Yeah. Uh, and I've probably me. heard it before, but there you are. What were you, 14, 15 years old? Oh, yeah, I was 14. And you go to the, by the dressing room, by the, by the curtain, and I'd be terrified. Well, I was a little scared, but I had big balls, uh, you know, and I just was always something in my head. I was like, I don't, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to give it a shot. And then one of the, a nicer, younger security guard took that piece of paper, took it in the back, wait there five, 10 minutes. He comes back and it's signed by Blassie. And my friend who I was with, I said, that's fake. That's not him. He didn't right. sign Maybe that. Tony Altamori signed it. Right. But but I sent it to Jeff Walton, who ran his fan club in oh. California, who then worked for the office. I mailed it to Jeff with a letter. Can you please verify this? Is it really Freddie Blassie's? And there was no Xerox, so you could make a copy, you know, send a copy of it. I sent him the original. He sent it back with a letter. Yes, that's Freddie's signature. Yes, he's endorsed you starting a fan club. And he gave me a package of all kinds of blassy cardboard mask and Olympic auditorium programs. And that started my friendship with Jeff Walton back in 71. But yeah, that, that was that was kind of cool. But that was the most memorable night for me on the Morales reign was that night, November 15th of uh, 71, because that started it all for me. Would you two maybe do if you let me put you in the booking chair for a second. Uh, you're booking the WWF back in 1973. Pedro just lost the title. Would you make him maybe your top baby face behind Bruno moving like Chief J Strongbow down a peg? What would you do with Pedro? What, what, would you do anything different or did you like what happened with Pedro after he lost the title? I'm not sure how long he stayed in the territory. I didn't do my advanced research. I'm going to just take a guess. I don't think he stayed around very long. He didn't. He started traveling a bit. You know, he started doing, he wasn't wrestling. It didn't even seem like he was wrestling full time. He was just doing shots. And, and, but I think from with Tim's question, if Morales had agreed to stay on full time or regular at the garden, I would have definitely put him in that number two babyface role at that time because of, you know, who he was as the next champion. Yeah, and you mentioned Chief J. Strongbow. You know, if you team Morales up with Strongbow, uh, it would be a, a fabulous babyface team. The people just love A dream him. tag team. They loved him so much. But, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, he was quickly out of the area. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe yeah. it's because he just did his run. He's exhausted. He wanted to take more time off. Now he's got a name. He can go to the territories, just visit here and there, become a partner in some tag teams. You need to bring somebody in. You go in. So we, we may never find out exactly what happened to Pedro Morales. He did come back later years uh, to the WWF, as it was called, and became the uh, Intercontinental Champion at one time. Uh, but let's, 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 let's progress a little more. Let's go on to tonight's card. The WWWF, New York City, Madison Square Garden, Monday night, December 10th. 1973, bell time 8.30, attendance 22,000. Yes, it is a sellout because our man Bruno is back. Let's start with uh, our first match, and, and Kerry wanted to comment on this match. El Olimpico pinned Tony Alamore in seven minutes, five seconds. I know, I know you want to talk about that. Well, my cousin and myself, we always used to say, we didn't care. It's the opening bout. <laughs> you know, the opening bout was okay. You know, the lights went out. And remember the people used to whistle? They, they, they whistled. Just, right. Five, ten minutes before 8.30 p.m., you'd hear them whistles and people right. stamping their feet, stamping their feet. And, and then finally the lights would go out, those ring lights would come on. And even though it was 
the lowly El Olimpico. I can't believe how many matches he got in the garden. You know, he must have been a good guy or someone's friend. And Tony Altamori had been around forever. And we've, we've talked about this before. We accepted this. This was a fine opening bout. <laughs> and, you know, I love when you guys talk about this because um, I was never at these garden shows. I, I, did, I, I wanted to bring this up earlier, and I forgot to tell you guys. Um, I went in November. I was in Europe. I went to Paris. I went to uh, London, England. And I was in London, England, and I was talking to a gentleman, and, and he was a wrestling fan. And I mentioned the podcast, and uh, he loved the idea because he was telling me, like, like Kerry was saying earlier, um, he's never been to the Olympic Auditorium. He's never been to the Guard. He's never been to the States before, but he loves the feeling of hearing about people who actually went to these shows and how it felt. He was talking, he was, he was comparing it to soccer. He was talking about uh, being at an old soccer field and, and what the smell and, and the bathroom lines and things like that. And uh, he was saying, I, oh, he can't wait to listen to the show because he, he, the same idea what you guys were just talking about. Who talks about this kind of stuff, like the whistling of it? You, you bring us back to like what it was like. I was never there before, but this is what I like having both of you around for because you're talking about things that I can just almost imagine what it was like not having, you know, not having guardrails around, just having a little rope and people whistling and doing these things and the smell of stuff. Let's not forget the unlimited cigarette and cigar smoking. That is true. Guy was smoking a big stinky cigar. It was accepted. And the you know the smoke filled. They talk about the smoke filled arenas. Well, the garden was a big one, but it was smoke filled also. Another thing I remember, uh, especially when you're coming to these opening matches, the crowd is not. They're happy. The show has started, but they're still kind of silent. They're they're not like you know it ain't a main event. It ain't a semi main event. So you can actually hear. The referee talking, not that they were like doing verbal clues as far as what moves to do, but you'd hear like Tony Altamori, like if he got his hair pulled or and he he'd make it a loud gesture. It, it would ring out throughout that arena because those microphones up above mm-hmm. caught some of that sound and you could hear. You know, voices from the crowd. Come on, you know, come on, Olaburgo. And it was almost like you're in it, almost in an empty arena in a lot of ways in those opening matches because people just didn't, they were there, they were watching, but they weren't like jumping up and down on their feet, uh, going nuts. To build up. It just, it was a crescendo. Yeah. It was like every match a little bit more important. And then boom, the place would explode. And what I always found funny about these matches, these earlier matches, is when someone got pinned and the crowd would erupt, they'd erupt because it's over. Because they're going on to the next match. They're not erupting because it was a great match. They're erupting because, good, maybe the next match will be a better match, which it always is. Like John just said, it'll be more interesting. Maybe it'll be quicker. This is the next match, match number two. Um, Kerry, we refer to him now as the murderer, Jose Gonzalez, pinned Joe Turco in 10 minutes, 35 seconds. Yeah. Uh, we don't like Jose Gonzalez. <laughs> no, nobody does. No. I used to like Joe Turco a little bit. I used to like the, you know, oh, the I continental love- noblemen. He came out with the old school Italian-esque uh, finger gestures. And- yeah, oh, the horns. He'd give him right. the horns. He hit his, his, uh, his thumb up, up by his teeth and go like this and give you the ogona. That's the Italian thing, the, the curse, well, the ogona. What is it called, please? Ogona, the ogona. <laughs> okay. The hex, the Italian hex. 
I thought the you do that to somebody, you, you're cursing them if you do that. You go like that, you're cursing, you're throwing a hex on, on them. Uh, and the other thing I loved about Turco, especially in these opening matches, when I talk about how silent it was, he had a loud voice. So he would just scream and it would reverberate, reverberate throughout the arena. And I know personally because I he was my tag team partner that one night, yeah, that magical right. night in '78. You know when I we fought uh, Strongbow and uh, Maivia. And, and he had a mustache. I only think about it now because I'm a Santa Claus and I had to twirl yeah, my mustache. Constantly, he used to twist the mustache. Yeah, he twirl it a little bit. It's so funny how a, a mustache like that on a bad guy melt, makes him look evil, but on a Santa Claus, it looks pretty good. It he does. A, yeah. He was, a, you know, for a preliminary guy, he was a solid worker. He got the crowd reaction, and uh, even if it was from throwing the old school hex on the people, the crowd reacted. And Jose Gonzalez at the time uh, was a young baby face, a, a, a Latino, and uh, the crowd was behind him. So a fine second match. Yeah, it was for him. I mean, for, for Gonzalez, before he did what he did, uh, but he was kind of being groomed and pushed a little bit, almost like a uh, to the level of Emmanuel Soto, and maybe even uh, maybe they had plans for him like uh, Victor Rivera type of push. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he had a he had a bright future until that night, really, where Brody beat the shit out of him on a on a TV taping, uh, legit. And uh, I don't know how much longer he was in the in the territory after that. And that's the night he kind of vowed that he'd get even with Brody. Uh, that happened in '76, I believe. It just goes to show. Kerry was talking about it earlier that history does repeat if you don't learn from yourself. And you know this it, the 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 murder of Bruiser Brody goes all the way back to '76. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's there's many layers to the story and we could make a podcast just talking about that. We'll get stuck. I mentioned to you guys, I did my big four issues of Lucha Libre de Puerto Rico in 2000 and 2001. And Jose Gonzalez was still a star in Carlos Colon's. Uh, you know, you had the Victor Quinones IWA. Yep. It was like they were the Beatles. And Carlos Colon were the bad guys, and uh, but Jose Gonzalez, he was still wrestling, and and uh, yeah, you know uh, he got away with murder. I don't even like thinking about it, but uh, I tell you one thing, I that uh, is a, a memory because that night when when Brody beat him in Philly, whatever happened, it, Brody was pissed at him, and and it, it was in the ring. You could tell because I was there watching it, and you, and you said this is like this is real. So I, I ran out because I was in the back and looking from the curtain uh, from the, and it was like Brody's beating him up, and he bloodied him the hard way. And I got my camera out and I did, I snapped about three or four pictures. They were all a little blurry and they're not, because it was like so unusual. And I, I was like, I got to get a couple of pictures of what's going on. And then uh, Manuel Soto and a couple others came out and helped Jose to the back, but he was bloodied and it was, it was a shoot. So whatever happened that started it. I don't think this exists saved on t on tape or am I incorrect? Like um, it was taped. It was. I don't know if they aired it. They might have not aired it. Right. Because I have a lot of the archives now from those '76 shows. Because mm -hmm. uh, I post them. I post them up for patrons. And uh, there's all kinds of matches with uh, Jose Gonzalez teaming with Kevin Sullivan. And that match is not in any of those old uh, listings of what was being taped. It's not there. 
It's interesting. Very interesting. Let's uh, let's get, continue on our garden show. Match number three, WWWF Tag Team Champion. Dean Ho defeated Pancho Valdez at 11 minutes, five seconds. Pancho Valdez also is, this is Gypsy Joe. Am I correct? That's correct. He had a long career. Geez, lasting until uh, when, when we made in Ring of Honor, when we did the wrestler movie with Mickey Rourke, and we got to be a part of that, the Necro Butcher who was, uh, had a run in Ring of Honor. He was friends with Gypsy Joe. And this is 2008, 2009. And I had forgotten that uh, Dean Ho was uh, half of the tag team champions. A short-lived reign with uh, Tony Guerrero, but a popular tag team. And I love Dean Ho. I thought he was just, he had a great style. He did some high-flying moves. He had a great body press. Uh, but yeah, they had Good charisma, those two guys, but they didn't hold the title for very long. The tag team was really a secondary belt. You know, they would often switch it on television, which was a surprise. At this show, the uh, tag team, the champions were split up. I remember my first tag team match that I saw. It was was Mr. Fuji and Mr. Saito losing their tag team belts to Chief Jake Strongbow and his brother Jules. Like you said, a TV match. It was on TV. You didn't expect it. And that went on for a few more times. Other title changed where you wouldn't see the Intercontinental belt changed or you wouldn't see the World Championship belt changed. So I, as a fan, really enjoyed being able to see that. Even in the 60s, it was all squashes, but, oh, I hope I get this right. Uh, Baron Cicluna and Smasher Sloan, I believe we're talking like 67, 66. I think they beat uh, Tony Paris, Tony Pagazi and Spiros Arion or something like that. And it was No, on. no, I, I remember it. I, I, I watched it. Uh, it was Cicluna and Sloan with the tag team champions. They beat uh, Antonio Pagazi. And Johnny Valentine. Valentine turned heel against Poyesi, and that's when Cicluna and Sloan won the title. And then following that, a few months later, whatever, Spiros Arion made his debut okay. on TV, got the win. And actually what happened, it was the same night, Miguel Perez and Poyesi were fighting Cicluna and Sloan for the title. Miguel Perez gets hurt, like in fall number one. He has to leave, and then... Arion comes out to team with Pugliese, and they win the titles on on Spiros Arion's very first night in, on television. Right, and the, but 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 Tim, the, the point is they would just give you squash match after squash match after squash match, but suddenly, even back in 1966, there'd be a tag team title match and a title change to boot. And it would keep you involved in it. You would go, okay, I saw that, so I got to watch these other ones. And it would keep me going for years watching. Now I look back at some of the shows I was watching. I goes, what was, what was I watching? Some of these matches are terrible, but you just don't know. One more note about that match, and, and thanks for filling in the blanks, John. When that happened, wrestling was on, to my memory, Channel 9 on Saturday afternoons, like 12.30 to 2.30. And I watched it. My dad was sort of sitting there going, come on, the the Yankee game's coming on. (laughs) And I saw a title change. And I went down my little block to where the other kids were hanging out. You know, I was 11 years old. One of the kids had a basketball net. 
And I run off like, hey, there's a title change for the tag team champions. These kids could, they, they, I, I could have been talking Chinese. Even then, it yeah. was so uncool. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were isolated back then. There was not a lot of wrestling fans. I mean, at all. I remember none of my friends gave a crap about wrestling. They thought I was an idiot to watch it. And it was kind of ironic that 1971, it was, uh, we had a, a sleepover, an outdoor sleepover with one of my buddies houses all right so everyone's we had pitched tents it was like six of us guys and in the tent was another kid i knew from high school but i never talked to him named frank favalli and all of a sudden something about wrestling came up and he was a huge wrestling fan and all of a sudden i zoned right into him because he would go with his dad every month to the garden and i'm like you're going to the you go to the garden and i had not gone yet to see a live show and then I went with him and his father on August 30th, 1971, Frank Favalli. And uh, we stayed up all night talking wrestling in that tent in 71, in the summer of 71. And then I got to go to my first match with him and his father. The bottom line is that even in the 60s, into the 70s, being a fan, unless you were with other like-minded people, it was totally uncool. And I mm -hmm. want to add one more thing. It was uncool to your parents because my dad would always – tell me if this happened to you two. Dad would walk in the room like your dad got the Yankee games. Come on. He wasn't sitting there watching this title change with you. He worried oh. about the Yankee game or what no. are you watching this stupid stuff for? It was always something – it's stupid. It's fake. They'd be young and you're like, I don't care. I'm watching this. Uh, you know, but my parents were parents of the Depression era. You know, my dad, like a lot of men at that time, he he had to quit school in like seventh or eighth grade. He had to go work. You know, my mom was fortunate and she finished high school, which was a big accomplishment. And she did not like, she wasn't a sports fan to start with, but that stupid wrestling, it's like, uh, you know, that lowbrow. Oh, you know, my mom liked the little Broadway she would listen to some, she liked jazz. She turned me on to classical music. I made believe I didn't care, but I knew this was good. She would play me West Side, soundtrack of West Side Story and some other good stuff. But the wrestling, forget it. You know, this was a lowbrow. She wouldn't even go in the room when it was on. I am very lowbrow. All right, we're going to continue. Uh, match number four, Don Leo Jonathan defeated Manuel Soto in 14 minutes, 45 seconds. How did they give this match 14 minutes? Well, they had to stop it because of blood. It was going to go longer. Which was unusual because of Soto really never, you know, you never saw juice from a guy like Soto before. Because of what happened, Jonathan beating Soto put him in line to face Bruno on the next show, Bruno's first title defense. However, this is where kayfabe was exposed because the Olympic Auditorium, Jimmy Lennon, mm -hmm. announced before the title change that the new champion, Bruno Sammartino, would be facing Don Leo Jonathan at Madison Square Garden. That word got out. It, was, it didn't travel because no internet. But right. the fans in Los Angeles who were there for that live Wednesday night show was live in Los Angeles, and then we'd get it several weeks later. They announced it live that Bruno was the new champion way before Bruno won the title. That was like a month or so before. Amazing. Well, I you know, and the other thing was, and we, we've spoken about this, because of the large Latino crowd, they were scared, uh, the people not liking that. So the, there usually wasn't clear decisions 
even with these preliminary guys. You know, you didn't see Manuel Soto losing many matches, let alone getting beaten up. And uh, if you go down yes. the list of, you know, whether it was Antonina Rocca, Miguel Perez, Victor Rivera, so on, Bruno, of course, uh, they were scared of them losing. You know, uh, they had to get the bad guy out of the ring quick if there was a dirty deed done. So this is a very That's interesting true. nugget. Let's go on to match number five. John Tullis, speaking of Los Angeles, John Tullis fought Victor Rivera to a 20-minute draw. Well, this was an example of the uh, of that aforementioned Spanish international network where the fans saw Tullis. But, John, correct me if I'm wrong. Even though this had been running on Channel 41 for a few years, it never seemed like the fans, that many of the fans uh, were behind these out-of-the-area stars, or am I forgetting? No, you're not forgetting. It's absolutely true. The only one that really made a huge impact was when Moscaris made his debut. That was special, and they were fully behind him. But the uh, great Goliaths of the world and the Black Gordons of the world and all these other uh, out-of-territory, even though they were seen locally on, on TV, Bernanga, uh, they the didn't. They, yeah, they didn't go over. like Only to the hardcore fans that might have been uh, non-Hispanic would really appreciate the guys like Graham coming in and, and those outsiders. But it surprised me when Gordman and Goliath came in. They didn't bring them in as a tag team initially. They were singles. Uh, but they didn't go over it big. And Tolis, of course, for the hardcore fans, they loved you know, John Tolis. to see John Tolis in person. But it also surprised me that, and I'm just speculating here, maybe Tolis had come in to meet with Vince Sr. about his shot against Bruno that took place in the following summer. Maybe Maybe there was meetings set up and he worked because he only did that one shot until he came back to face San Martino in uh, July of uh, 74. You might be right. Match number six. Let's go with Pedro again. Pedro Morales defeats Larry Henning in a lumberjack death match. I don't even know what that means. With a Boston Crab in 13 minutes, 10 seconds. A lumberjack death match ending with a Boston Crab. What more can you say? I do like that, that, you know, they are continuing. They're going, well, Larry Henning was going to verse Pedro anyway. Well, he still has to verse him, even though he doesn't have the title. John, you were there. Uh, mm -hmm. So do you have any memories of this? I do. I, I just thought it was like the thing that was uh, I was pissed off because I was I couldn't get a good clear shot of the ring with all the guys standing around it. Trying oh, to take did they pictures, do it? But I thought it, I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, there were, guy, there were guys around the ring. There was not a lot like you would see uh, sometimes, uh, you know, in some of the other territories where it would be you know, t 15 guys, but there were, you know, a few on each side and, and a death match. There was never a death match in New York, really. Oh. Uh, Texas death, because it was just kind of an advertising ploy. It was kind of a bait and switch because of the New York State Athletic Commission. They couldn't do what they wanted to do anyway. Anything like that, any type of gimmick match would be stopped, at least at that time, until they finally decided to put a cage match up later on, I think, in 75. Do you have any memories of the rematch to Morales Blassie because once again I went to the November 15th 71 and I mm -hmm. begged my father who was nice enough to take me for my 14th birthday I'm like dad it's a Roman gladiator death gladiator match. death match please take me yeah, well, you're supposed to drag your opponent and touch all four corners of the ring to win the match. That's Roman Gladiator Deathmatch uh, and, and the stuff that I had learned, but it was there was nothing like it. 
Okay. It's bullshit. We were talking earlier about this, Kerry, how uh, the Garden and the WWWF at that time had their own versions of matches, not what we'd normally see yeah. other places, other territories. These are their own versions. So the Boston Crab with the Lumberjack match, whatever they want to call it, that was, that was nice. But we're really leading up to match number seven. Bruno San Martino pinned WWWF world champion Stan Stasiak at the 12-minute, 14-second mark to win the title after three consecutive body slams. Prior to the bout, Bruno was escorted to the ring by Arnold Skolin, and the Grand Wizard escorted the champion. Did they keep this as the final match? Because we know many, many times the title match was in the middle of the card. It was in the middle of the card. Yeah, it was past that halfway point. But the uh, the thing I remember was the electricity of the crowd. When Stasiak came out wearing that belt with the Grand Wizard and Stasiak's prancing around the ring with that title around his waist, it was something like the fans in New York had had never, you know, had not seen, you know, because they were used to Morales. And uh, and the Koloff, of course, had his uh, one little shot and Stasiak right. the same thing. But it was the buildup. It was the buildup. And of course, no music, right? No Curtain music. opens. Here comes Bruno with Skolin. Friendly Bob Freed is, this, Bob is the Freed. ring announcer that night. It was uh, incredible. I, I started taking pictures. I mean, I got some, some really good shots that I put up on my socials recently. I can't begin to tell you how, how it was this this feeling of something amazing is going to happen. And although the finish was kind of surprising because you would think that Bruno would win on with a bear hug. Right. Or how he beat Rogers in 63 with a backbreaker after 57 seconds or whatever that was. This was body slams and a pin. That was a very unusual that Stasiak didn't get caught into a bear hug or Bruno's first uh, most famous finisher back in the day was that backbreaker. But it was magical. I mean, there was confetti being thrown when he got the win. Uh, Skolin running in the ring. The referee, uh, Dick Crow, presenting Bruno with the title and Skolin putting it around his waist and him holding it up. And and the confetti flying and, you know, looking at Georgie, too. I mean, right. she's tears running down her face. I was right behind the photographers, Napolitano, Bill Apter, the Japanese photographers, Frankie Amato. It was like everyone shooting, shooting their pictures. The fans going wild. Bruno celebrating. He was celebrating, but not in a way where he was jumping up and down like, oh, my God, I'm the champion. I'm elated. He was kind of like, oh, here we go again. So it was really a fascinating night. And the thing that I, I, I really regret most, and I think I've told this story before, is I did bring my movie camera there as well. For whatever reason, I might have overexposed the film. I might have opened it oh. up before the film was done. So I don't have the film record of it, but I do have uh, photographs of uh, not only the Bruno match, but I took several of the Tolis match against Rivera and Morales against Henning. Were you at the but point... Just, where you were going to the Savoy after the show at this time. Not yet. No, no, okay. that didn't happen until uh, that really didn't happen until probably mid 74. Cause I wasn't even old enough to get in the bar. That wouldn't stop you in New York city that often. Hey, listen, uh, oh no, but I think it was like, I turned 18 in January of 75. Right. The uh, so that might've been when I started then. going. Cause I was 18 and you could drink while you were 18 back then. Right. Cause I do remember even when I first met Donnie liable, you know, this was in mid 75 and I was already going to the Savoy and Donnie would be outside the Savoy. Cause he was, he 
was younger. So he'd be like wiping the window of the Savoy bar, you know, it was all fogged up so he could peek in and see who's in there. You know, he'd always be standing outside in the winter in the cold with his coat. And we're all in there drinking a beer and, and poor Donnie's outside can't get into the bar. So but it was magical. It was magical. These are fed phenomenal memories we talk about magic at, at the garden and i, I want to bring up with you guys something that's different about and, and try to explain to the younger fans about this now you, they're playing for television they're doing this for tv so you know you got the pop of the music you got the person come out they'll stand on a nice runway everyone will look at them they'll pose a little and then they come to the ring back in the day there was no music there was nothing about it you the match was coming but you waited and you looked and then the people that would get the first look were the people across from everybody they were on the a little higher up and they can see in kind of like the locker room as soon as you open the curtain they can see them come out and they'll they're the first ones to make the pop of going oh, there they are they're stasiac oh boo boo oh then everyone else catches it and it catches on and it's like a whirlwind because it starts in one area of the garden and then it goes to everywhere else you know not everyone sees it at the same time and then the same thing with bruno when bruno comes out you look for his head oh there's bruno oh there i can see him and then it comes out this is no music this is no we're, we have to pump you guys up you're already pumped up so please explain to people i've been to what i've been to a lot of sporting events i've been to the olympics there's there's a lot of popping going on but when you go to like um i was in boston i went to the boston garden for a playoff game and that just was the most different experience for me because you felt the home field advantage. You felt like the crowd involved in it. Explain to me, and, and Kerry, I want you to explain, I want you to explain, John, what, what is it like in the garden whose home it is? It is Bruno's home. It's a house that Bruno built. What was it like when he came in to the garden for an appearance? I tell people that it would rival the applause for an encore of Led Zeppelin or whomever. The, the, the loudest of concerts, I was at Ranger Games, crowds were raucous. There was this rumbling, particularly for Bruno. You don't get this anymore. It's just something that you had to be there. I don't think the tapes that exist on TV, even the ones from the 70s, capture that feeling it was like you know in your body you had to be there it was a wave it was like a wave when that curtain opened like even when with stasiak or whatever the heel was coming out it, it would start off like the people who would on the adjacent sides of that, that curtain and that aisle they'd start to boo and then all of a sudden the ringside then the second deck the third deck the fourth deck the upper deck and with bruno it was the same thing it was a wave and you'd hear that excitement you hear the pop and then it just kind of spread like it's almost like the wave at a baseball game you know where it just engulfs the whole place and then it crescendo when he walks up those metal steps and he goes into that ring the place is berserk and that's the way I remember it. That's why it wasn't. You're absolutely right, Carrie. It's not portrayed, and you can't get that feel by even watching those old tapes on Peacock. No. I was showing a young friend of mine, a, a friend through a friend. He's a, a young man that wants to be a wrestler. I was with him a few weeks ago asking me my advice. I told him, find another line of work. But... I and so I'm showing him. I said, "Here, let me just show you some some old stuff." 
you know, he was familiar with the modern product. And to him, an old guy was John Cena or, you know, uh, The Rock. But I was showing him these tapes. I pulled, you know what I pulled out to show him to where you could really feel that rumble was the Billy Graham, Dusty Rhodes, Bull Rope match. That one on TV played well. I was trying, my point is I was trying to, in the best way possible, present that sound, the swelling, the rumble, and there's not a lot of examples. And it doesn't exist today. It just doesn't exist. It, people might argue, oh, what do you mean, Carrie? When Roman Reigns comes out, blah, 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 or CM Punk, and yes, they get a very good reaction. John and Tim, maybe we're romanticizing this. Maybe we're trying to go back to our youth and say things were better back then. But it was a different vibe. Like today, it's not spontaneous as it was and it wasn't authentic. It didn't have authenticity because today when Roman Reigns comes out or the wise man or whoever, some of it is canned. They pump it in, you know, for TV, uh, for the audio mix. But it's not like that spontaneous combustion of excitement and people losing their freaking minds when Bruno would enter the ring and even Morales enter the ring and any of those guys. Not only that, with today's product, and it's been this way for many years, you got the videos, you know, the video parts of the entrance. You have this spectacular lighting. So by the time the wrestler has come out, all right, let's give credit where it's due. The, the glass would break for Stone Cold Steve Austin, and you got a good reaction. But people that are listening to this that didn't get to experience it, John said the perfect word. It was organic. And there were no video screens. There was no, you know, we've said this five times, now it'll be six. There was no entrance music. There was no special lighting. I don't even think they had one follow spotlight from the top. That was <laughs> I don't think so. You know, because that would have cost like $250 with the union. So yeah. when the rest of Tim, when the wrestler came out, whether it was Manuel Soto or whomever, like you said, they came through that curtain, even though you knew Stan Stasiak's in the ring and it's obviously going to be Bruno, there was this earthquake kind of slow build. And, uh, it was special. It just was special. Like a concert. You know the band's coming on, and you know the lights go out, and all of a sudden you can kind of see someone going on in the back of the stage, like the drummer going up or something, and you go, <gasps> you know? You know they're coming, but you're very excited about that. So this, this was very a historic night, and like Kerry was talking about, they did put this in the middle, because now we have a couple more matches here. We have the WWF Tag Team Champion Tony Gurria pin Mike McCord in 12 minutes, 35 seconds. John, I want to ask you not about the match, but you you just finished off with Bruno. He finally gets out, and now you're starting another match. What do you guys do? Are you just not even paying attention to this? Are you, are you just high-fiving? What are you doing? It wasn't like these guys were being paid much attention to, not taking anything away from Greer or McCord or even the final match of the night. It was an elation that 
we got Bruno back. He's the new champion. The crowd was on a high, but they could give a shit now, excuse the French, about whatever followed. They literally should have put on Bruno and Stasiak last because nothing was going to follow no matter who you were. You could have had, you know, you could have had, um, uh, I'm not going to get gross here, but you could have had, you know, naked, whatever, hot all women wrestling. I'm thinking probably wouldn't have got a pop uh, at that time in that crowd. It was like Bruno wins the title, end the show, send everybody home happy. Don't let these guys work. There's two more matches because no one cares. They saw what they wanted to see, Bruno champion again. And, and it, it had to be an instance like this night where there was such a, a, a cataclysmic event. Because normally, even if there was a really good match, I don't know, going ahead a few a year or two, Bruno against Koloff in the first steel cage match. Uh, which, of course, was in the middle of the card. You know, when it was over, the people got back into it. But on a not like, I, I wasn't there, but on a, not, on a night like this, you could not follow that up. And these guys had to go back in the ring. So you're talking about Tony Gurria, Mike McCord in 12 minutes, then you get on to the ninth and final match with the Chief Jay Strongbow defeated Blackjack Lanza in 7 minutes, 15 seconds. So we're talking about like a, a good 20 minutes more of matches that they really didn't have to have. Yeah, I agree. And I think I might even left before that last match. <laughs> you get, get on that train early because after Bruno went in the title, there's nothing else to see that night. No, I've been at some shows that I had that feeling. I know we're talking about this particular card, but I remember being at a, a San Martino Superstar Graham match. Might have been during Bruno's title reign. Did, did Bruno wrestle uh, Graham after Graham won the belt at the Garden? I don't think yes. so. Okay. No, he did. Maybe it was that. Even something that that was, you know, such a big deal, the people sort of settled back in. But this particular card, once again, we don't, you know, this is a, 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 a G-rated PG podcast. They blew their load. With the Sam, so serious with the San Martino uh, Stasiak match, they finally got their comeuppance, and uh, it was cool. It's like bringing a comedian on after the band comes on. The, the right. comedian opens up for him, get the band on, then the comedian comes back and tries to tell jokes. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Well, John, you were at the show. How would you rate this card? Uh, I would certainly rate it as one of the best cards ever. Bruno, of course, winning, but Tolis. One of my favorites, seeing him live for the first time. And always seeing Jonathan. You know, John Leo Jonathan was also in my top five at the time. Uh, so um, that made it for me. But it was it was a Bruno night. It was Bruno, Bruno, Bruno. He wins the title. That was what made it uh, one of the most historic and favorite shows that I ever attended in my life. And after 50 years, Kerry is still kicking himself. What was he doing that night? I, I don't know. You know, I, I still had my head on straight. And <laughs> I don't know what would happen. Maybe my cousin was unavailable and uh, I couldn't get in the city because my streak of shows started. I mean, I, I went to a number of shows, in, well, the, the November 15th and then some in 72. Uh, I was at Shea Stadium 
for the Morales, that terrible Morales-Bruno match that they should have just kept in the garden. They didn't expect the bad weather. And I went to a number of shows. But around this time, I got my license. And it was easier for me to get around. And I developed some friendships with some fans that I had met. Like the way you met your friend Frank, I met these guys from Coney Island, uh, Howie and uh, Randy, and we became friends. And it was like, wow, I have a wrestling friend. So even if my cousin, who was four years older than me, he was into rock and roll, he was into girlfriends, and I had someone that I could meet there. And I started going to pretty much all the shows on this second Bruno title run into the Billy Graham run. And uh, I'm glad we're still here to talk about it. (laughs) I agree. And the other unfortunate thing was, um, especially for guys like you who didn't make it there that night, there's no documentation of this other than what you saw on the newsstand wrestling magazines. There's no clips. And it's ironic because the show before was on HBO. The night, the month before November of 73 was on HBO this they didn't even have any documentation they didn't tape it it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it didn't air anywhere it's mind-boggling that they knew this was coming and they didn't want to preserve it it's crazy now they tape everything now now you can't do a thing without it being taped Uh, listen i i I appreciate uh you guys letting me throw in my two cents here we love your two Uh, cents i i I hope i'm able to add something to this to this stew to make it good a nice Christmas you did. stew. You, you, you did, Carrie. And Carrie, is there anything, uh, before we let you go, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anything? Okay, where can people find you, Carrie? I'm on social media a little, you know, R-O-H-C-A-R-Y on Twitter. You'll see me post a poster, uh, and I'm on Instagram. But uh, I enjoy doing these podcasts of people that are my friends, like you guys, and I get a request now and then and uh i'm grateful for that i don't know when this is going to be released but i hope you guys have a good holiday season and i'm not too proud to beg have me back another time please oh we will you don't need to beg for that we were going to beg you we we love having you here carrie i mean it's just your insight and the fact that you were there and especially now that we're in the second uh title run of bruno and these were times where you started on and uh, I think uh, your insights and to get another perspective of someone who was there, I think we we definitely will be calling after the first of the year to get, bring you back on and have you maybe as a regular here because it's like, who else can we discuss this stuff with? There's not very many of us left, my friend. That's the sad <laughs> thing. That's the sad thing. Um, I know. I know. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how to run your show, but you know, it'd be nice to get George Napolitano to join in. Oh, he's got open invite. You know, he was at these shows and uh, it's it's the truth. You know, there's not a lot of people left. So uh, we'll make the best. Let's make that a New Year's resolution. How's that? A New Year's resolution. We'll both hound him, Carrie. You, because I know he loves you and me. And uh, say, hey, listen, we got an opportunity to shoot some baseball with Gibby, you know. But you got to do the podcast first. (laughs) There you go. Listen, thank you again very much. Uh, from the All right, thank you. My heart. <laughs> thank you Merry for joining Christmas, us, Happy Gary. New Year, Dean.
Thank you, buddy. Our next Garden Show, January 14th, 1974, headlining with Don Leo Jonathan getting a crack at Bruno's WWWF World Heavyweight Championship. And, of course, once again, we wouldn't be doing this show without a shout-out to Scott Teal and Crowbar Press. Yeah, that book is our Bible. Uh, that is Wrestling in the Garden from Crowbar Press and Scott Teal. So you can pick it up at crowbarpress.com. All right, John, It's it's been a great year, and uh, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season, and I know we're going to have a very uh, happy and healthy new year, and we will talk again in uh, January 2024. Yes, we will, and uh, Tim, I know you're so busy with what you're doing, and uh, I wish you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and to everybody who's listened to Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Uh, we also like to thank Richie Garcia, who does the wonderful job of writing and research and uh, is always digging in that Bible for artifacts and little antidotes that we could talk about. So, Richie, uh, I know you're not with us here today. You're, uh, you're, you're on the island. You're on Long Island doing your thing. But uh, without you, uh, the show really doesn't happen. So, And you, Tim, thank you so much for all the hard work you put into this. Uh, I know that uh, uh, the big money is not uh, part of this deal, uh, but it it certainly pr provides some satisfaction for all of us, doesn't it, it's, it? It's my pleasure. I love doing it with you guys. I love talking to you. I love talking to Carrie and everyone else who we've had on the show over the years. So uh, for John Rizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. <laughs>